Hello. Welcome to the second session of our programming on the history, application, and future of wargaming. Uh, I'm Reed Pauly. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Brown University and one of three organizers of this webinar together with uh, Eric Lynn Greenberg and Jackie Schneider. Uh, we'd like to thank, uh, just at the start, our co-sponsors, our hosts at the Hoover Institution, Stanford, uh, co-sponsored with the MIT Security Studies Program and Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. Uh, this series is inspired by uh, a lot of you in the audience. Uh, all of the innovative work being done today in many institutions related to wargaming methods. Uh, and it is our goal to add to a conversation in the social sciences, especially about the use of wargaming methods to answer research questions. Uh, to that end, uh, Jackie Schneider, Eric Lynn Greenberg, and I uh, also have just published an article in the European Journal of International Relations, EJIR, that talks about the exciting growth of wargaming in the field of political science, especially, and lays out a bit of a research agenda. Uh, this article has graciously been ungated by the editors uh, during this webinar series, so uh, I will post a link in the chat uh, uh, shortly for everyone. Uh, to go download it for free while it is uh, out from behind the paywall. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, this is the second in our series. Last time we had a terrific conversation about the history of wargaming uh, and archival research on wargaming. Uh, I'll also post a link in the, in the chat to the YouTube video um, recording of last session. Uh, and uh, just a reminder before we start today that there will be another session, a final session, on March 16th on war games and national security, which is gonna focus on the policy impact of wargaming um, and have a conversation that'll include uh, former Deputy, Deputy Secretary of Defense, Bob Work, uh, Dr. Mika Zanko and Dr. Stacey Pettyjohn will be there as well. Uh, so for the rest of today's conversation, I'd like to turn it over to Eric Lynn Greenberg of MIT to introduce our guests and lead us in a discussion about Wargaming, design, and social science. Eric, floor is yours. Uh, well, thanks so much for, for the introduction, Reed. Uh, so as Reed mentioned, uh, last week we had a, a really, really incredible conversation uh, on the history of wargaming and on the important lessons that, that we can learn uh, by viewing wargame data as a sort of archival record. Uh, so today I really hope to, to continue that conversation uh, by exploring wargame design. Uh, particularly how we might think about leveraging uh, best practices and principles from social science research methods as part of the war, design, uh, war game design process. And by that, I mean principles like experimental design, sampling and recruitment, external or ecological validity. And you know, our conversation today really takes place in the midst of a renaissance in wargaming among political scientists, uh, particularly those that are interested in studying questions of international security, where, where real world data are either really scant or just difficult to observe. And so we know that researchers have, have long used a variety of different approaches, such as historical case studies uh, to explore these issues. But in recent years, we've seen a, a turn in scholarship in which researchers are, are using a variety of, of synthetic data generating processes, like lab experiments and experiments embedded in surveys uh, to produce data that allow them to really closely examine causal relationships. And as part of this shift, we've seen a, a significant increase in the number of researchers using war games in their work. 
So while many of the examples that we'll talk about today deal with academic studies of, of conflict and international security, I think that many of the lessons that, that hopefully will come out of this discussion are, are more broadly applicable outside of academia and more broadly applicable outside of, of security studies and international relations. Really to anyone interested in using simulations or wargaming uh, to, to really understand human behavior and decision-making um, in a variety of different contexts, be it in business, politics, or, or something else. Um, but yet regardless of, of the substantive focus of this research, I think researchers using war games will confront a number of challenges and, and key decisions in their design process. Uh, so what are the trade-offs of using war games? What types of information can war games provide? And really what are the limitations of war games? And I really can't think of anyone better to discuss these issues with us than our, our two distinguished panelists today. So let me introduce them and then we'll dive right into to the subject matter. Uh, so Dr. Rose McDermott is the David and Mar uh, Mariana Fisher University Professor of International Relations at Brown University and a fellow at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, so uh, Dr. McDermott's work focuses on political psychology, really exploring how human behavior and psychology affects decision makings uh, in the international security and international relations domain. And I think many of us credit Rose with really starting this wargaming renaissance uh, with an article that she published in 2007 uh, in the Annals of the American Academy of Political Science, uh, Political Science and Social Science uh, that explored aggression in a crisis simulation. I'll ask Rose to talk a little bit about that in a bit. And our other panelist is Dr. Andrew Reddy, uh, who is an assistant professor of practice at UC Berkeley School of Information and a senior engineer at Cyndia National Laboratories. Uh, and his work focuses on cybersecurity, nuclear weapons, and emerging military technology. And he's really at the forefront of work on experimental wargaming, uh, including a, a publication on the topic in the journal Science, and also a forthcoming article in the Journal of Peace Research. Uh, so thanks to, to both of you uh, for, for being here today. And so I want to open really by asking you to describe some of your uh, wargaming work. Um, so, so Rose, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your 2007 article. Um, to start off with, and we'll have Andrew talk about some of his recent findings. Thanks. Thanks so much, Eric. I really appreciate it. Um, it's nice to have an opportunity to revisit some of this work. Um, the original experiments that I ran, um, that uh, some element of which was in the article you mentioned, um, actually was inspired in large part by Steve Rosen, who was um, and still is in the government department at Harvard. And he had been able to um, receive a grant from the um, Office of Net Assessment in the Department of Defense because they were quite interested in some of these questions related to um, the influence of hormones on um, aggressive behavior. And so we conducted a series of experiments uh, with their generous funding um, at Harvard, actually in the uh, basement of the business school was where we ran the experiments. Um, and what we were trying to do was get at the question that they were interested in about the influence of hormones. And obviously it's not something where there was a lot of existing data. It wasn't like you could go to the DOD and say, hey, can you guys take a bunch of blood tests from the people that are in combat, right? Like it just, it, it was not only logistically unfeasible, but unethical, right? So when I think about the origin of a lot of this work, it isn't just things where um, it's difficult because we don't have data, like there hasn't thankfully been a nuclear war, so we don't have a lot of data on the outcome of what would happen in the wake of a nuclear conflict. 
Um, but there's also aspects of it where it's kind of unethical. And so um, the work that we designed was intended to sort of be a hypothetical, like as if or what if. And um, there's had been at the time, this is the early 2000s, a number of very um, uh, first line MRI studies showing that the way that people made decision-making and processing in their brain when they dealt with a hypothetical was the exact same pathways as when they actually did it themselves. And so we thought, hmm, that's really interesting. If we can get at these processes, these as-if processes and engage the same um, decision-making uh, um, strategies and mechanisms as when people actually do it, that comes as close as you're going to get without having logistical or ethical violations. And so that was the sort of inspiration of it. And we ran a series of these uh, war games where we had um, subjects play against each other in um, a simulated conflict where they had to role play that they were the leader of a country and the other person was the leader of another country. And there were certain uh, resources we gave them, certain challenges we gave them, and certain options we gave them. And some people went to war and some people uh, didn't go to war and, and we could sort of uh, play it out among you know, several hundred people to look at the outcomes of it. And so that was sort of the original source and what we were trying to accomplish. And obviously um, others who have done war games uh, sequentially have been much more sophisticated, but that was sort of the inspiration of what we were starting to do and why. Well, thanks so much. And, and so one of the points that, that Rose brings up is that these essentially simulated crises really engage the same decision-making strategies uh, as, as real-world crises. And so, Andrew, I want to turn the floor over to you to talk about some of your, your recent wargaming work, uh, which, again, I, I think is really at the cutting edge of some of this experimental wargaming work. Um, so over to you. Perfect. Thanks, Eric. And just before I start, thank you uh, all. I mean, all, all four of you played a you know significant role in nurturing you know my own research agenda. So it's wonderful to be on a on a panel with all of you. Um, I should say up front, from my perspective, there are kind of three uses for wargaming methods writ large. Um, so for teaching or pedagogy, um, for exploration, and for analysis. And and my work, like Rose's that you just heard, very much focuses on the latter. Um, and so most recently, the the piece that Eric's uh, referencing. Uh, used war games as an experimental environment to examine the impacts of specific nuclear capabilities, and in this case, low yield nuclear capabilities on escalation and likelihood of nuclear use. In the absence, as Rose pointed out, of empirical data, thank goodness, to actually test these, these problems. Um, this use case was particularly compelling at the beginning of the project, uh, given the, the fairly vociferous policy debates inspired by the Nuclear Posture Review. And the fact that scholars much smarter than me, here's looking at, you know, Vipin Narang and Austin Long, looked at the same information regarding the capability and came to wildly different conclusions about whether they might be stabilizing or destabilizing. Um, and so, of course, there's no empirical data with which to adjudicate their kind of theoretical claims. And so, so I looked at that and said, well, you know, war games can maybe play a role here in actually providing some of that data to, to start thinking about adjudicating uh, that type of theoretical debate. And so what, what our team had built uh, between Lawrence Livermore, Sandia National Labs, and UC Berkeley uh, was the Signal Wargaming platform very gradually. And so it started off as a tabletop exercise, became uh, a board game uh, that I still think is fantastic to play um, with, with graduate students. Uh, and then eventually the Signal online game that actually became the test bed for 
uh, running the experiment. Uh, and ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about the signal design. It's it's one v one v one multiplayer game. Um, players are orange, green, or purple, and we can talk about why those colors. Uh, and they play on a particular map design, and so all of the all of those type, types of decisions are really important, um, but have no place inside of like the academic articles that get published. And so you know we we talk about that kind of thing in our in our, in our manual and some of the wargaming related uh, outlets as well. Uh, but happy to chat about like the design decisions that we're making. And ultimately, we found some support for the idea that loyal capabilities increase the likelihood of nuclear use, uh, and had a much stronger finding that loyal capabilities actually substitute for high yield nuclear capabilities, uh, all else equal. Um, one, one of the other things that we did was we validated against the survey experiment as well. Obviously, you know these are apples and oranges, but they are, like Eric mentioned, both synthetic DGPs, and so. You know, later, kind of when we talk about some of the barriers to publication, that mixed methodness, I think, was really important to actually getting the piece uh, out there into the world. Well, thanks so much. And I definitely want to come back in a few minutes to talk about all of these design considerations that both Rose and Andrew have alluded to. So who's playing? You know, what do these scenarios look like? And I think that'll be a very kind of fruitful part of the conversation. But before diving into specifics, I think there's this kind of lingering question of, of what actually is a war game. So I think Reed, Jackie, and I conceive of a war game as having a few dimensions, and it's essentially you're taking players. Um, we can debate how many players one actually needs for a war game to be a war game. And you're going to immerse those players into some kind of realistic scenario where they're going to confront uh, some type of challenge, but they're going to have to follow a set of rules. And there's going to be consequences for their actions. Uh, those consequences might vary depending on, on what the war game is. So I was wondering if we can, you know, ask both Rose and Andrew, how do you conceive of a war game? Uh, does it align with our definition? Or are we totally off? Uh, so, so Rose, I'll start with you on that. Yeah, I guess I think that you can have a couple different kinds of war games. One is um, the way that I think the original ones were done during the Vietnam War. Fred Greenstein writes about the original ones that were done with uh, high-level policymakers uh, trying to war game out the outcomes of the Vietnam War, where they actually played red teams and blue teams, and they were real decision makers confronting real decisions that were ongoing at the time. And what was remarkable about those games is that if you look back at them, um, they actually were incredibly accurate in predicting the outcome of the war. So they showed that the Vietnamese were going to win, um, but everybody ignored it because they didn't want to believe it, right? And so um, that was a very realistic scenario, but um, uh, it didn't have the effect that, that they wanted. Um, the other way is, is to do these sort of hypotheticals that we've been talking about, where you have regular people, whether they're policymakers or not, uh, with some hypothetical scenario. So it's not like an actual scenario, like this is what's going on in Ukraine, or this is what's going on in Vietnam, or this is what's going on in Afghanistan. And you have a hypothetical scenario, and you try to game it out using... Uh, a certain number of players and a certain kind of design. I think the challenge from a social scientific perspective is the bigger the number of players, the larger number of players, the more difficult it is to get any control and any traction on actually looking at causal uh, inference and causal patterns. So my initial war games had one person playing one person, and then we aggregated it across the number of, of dyads we had. But a lot of the military war games I'm aware of you know, can have hundreds of players. And that can be very useful for looking at, say, Vietnam, because it's a specific circumstance where you want a specific outcome. But 
you're not going to be able to extract a lot of causal information because there's just too much noise in the system. And so part of what kind of war game you want to do, I think, depends on what your underlying theoretical, empirical, or logistical goal is. Andrew, do you want to jump in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, I really liked your definition uh, in the piece, not least because I think it captures the kind of the full spectrum of what you might use war games for from that pedagogical use case to the exploratory use case to the kind of more analytical causal inference use case. Um, and for me as well, war games represent an immersive environment in which players make strategic decisions have to live, at least for the period that they're in the game, with the consequences of those decisions. Um, so that's kind of my, my, my riff uh, on, on your, def your guys' definition. Um, and, you know, I think ultimately these are, the, these are the traits that set it apart from the alternative synthetic data generating processes, or DGPs, um, from formal modeling to computer-based simulation and survey experiments that really are the appropriate comparison for, for wargaming methods. Um, and then, you know, layered on top of that, all the individual design decisions that you're going to make, right? Is it single player? Is it multiplayer? Is it, you know, player versus scenario? Is it player versus player? Is it analog? Is it online? Is it abstract? Is it not? All of those things kind of come from those characteristics uh, up top. Um, but anytime that you're faced with kind of a behavioral question, you know, I think that those characteristics are the ones that kind of really make it distinct from, you know, trying to set up a formal model uh, to explain the scenario of interest. Um, so, so I think that's, uh, that's kind of my take on it is kind of, you know, what are the things that make this tool in our toolkit unique versus others? Not to say that we shouldn't be using the others. My, my, I'm a big tent person, right? I think we, that we absolutely should be using all the others as well. Uh, but I think that one of the nice things about the definition that you set out in the EGIR piece is that it makes clear what those distinctions actually are. So I actually want to spend another few minutes talking about definitions to make sure we're all kind of on the same page. Then I think we'll, we'll dive some more into to questions about research design and, and best practices and the trade-offs that I think you know, scholars and, and others that are, are using wargaming need to think about. So the first, uh, Andrew, I think you've used the term data gener generating process. I also used it and failed to, to kind of define what I mean by that. But what do we mean by a, a data generating process uh, and a synthetic data generating process? Yeah, so I mean, anytime that you're faced with a, a research question where you want to try to kind of test a theory, you're going to have to draw data from somewhere. You know, traditionally in political science, we draw it from the world out there, right? And we choose, you know, what are the things out there that are important? We go ahead and count them and we throw them into a data set. Or alternatively, we, you know, use case selection and case design, uh, comparative case study design. Uh, but either way, data is being generated for you to test your hypotheses, at least in positivist social science. Um, in terms of synthetic, it's when we can't actually look outside that window and collect that data. Um, and so, you know, as scholars, there's a variety of different ways to address this problem, right? You know, game theorists might try to say, okay, I want to come up with the most parsimonious explanation for my phenomenon of interest. Um, and, you know, oftentimes those can be fairly divorced from the, the, uh, the real world phenomenon, if you will, because you have to make so many assumptions about things like rationality of your units or a perfect information that, you know, in some contexts, I think make it inappropriate to kind of push onto things like crisis decision-making where, you know, time horizons are short and political leaders may not actually, in fact, you know, operate rationally. Um, but, e but either way, right, whether it's kind of researcher introduced data or in terms of, you know, experimental designs 
um, like experimental wargaming, right? You're getting that data from the players playing the game. Uh, but either way, right, to test theory, you need you need that data to to be generated for you to use. And being, you know, very clear about where that is that your data is coming from is very important. And from our perspective, right, things like the sample really matter. The the kind of the scenario context in which the data is created really matters. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of my take on it. But but no matter which method you're using, there's always the data generating process. Just a question of whether it's coming from the real world or we actually have to create it as scholars. Perfect. No, I appreciate that clarification. So I think, you know, there's lots of ways that, that scholars are using war games. Um, there's some really, really exciting research that, that's happened that we talked about in our last sessions, work by, by folks like Reed Pauly uh, and John Emery that are using war games uh, as an archival data source. So looking at games that have been run in the past and, and trying to see what lessons we can learn from that, right? Looking at these war games as a, as a data source. Um, but I think much of the, the more recent gaming work is actually folks like you, Andrew, that are running war games. And, and this type of, of work is happening really in the midst of this experimental turn uh, in international relations scholarship. So, so Rose, I think you wrote some of the, the key pieces that really started perhaps this experimental turn in international relations. Uh, so, you know, how do we think about experiments in international relations. I think when people often hear about experiments, we think about lab experiments that, that scientists are doing to develop vaccines and things like that. Um, but if you could offer us some context uh, about the role of experiments in international relations and political science, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I guess this is one of those moments where I'm like, watch out, you might get what you're after. Um, so in 1999, I submitted one of my very first articles ever to political behavior. No, it was AJPS and it was an experiment. And I got back a letter from the editor with a reject saying, we all know you can't learn anything about political science from experiments. And I was furious um, because I had been trained in psychology. I really believed in the ability to you know, generate causal inference from experiments. Uh, in one of the few times I've ever done this, I challenged him. It was Greg Caldera. And he said to me, I can send it out for additional reviews, but I can assure you they will be even more negative. And so that's when I started thinking about like, hey, it's really important to start thinking about the way that this very valuable method, which can actually traction causation in a way that no other method can, should be used and exported for political science. And around that time, Jim Alt at Harvard ran a very small uh, seminar. The year I had an Olin fellowship with a few of the people who were starting to do experiments in political science. So it was Rick Wilson, um, some of the more economists, Gary Miller, Gary Bolton, um, uh, Alan Gerber, who lasted half of one day, um, and uh, a few other people. Becky Morton was at the second session. There were there were a few other people and. Um, really started thinking about how to how to apply experiments to not just political science, um, but to international relations. It was a much quicker uptake in American politics because um, the primary concern is voting and it's much easier to do experiments where a single person is making a single decision, right? Um, and so one of the things that was really interesting and valuable to me about the war game prospect was that it allowed you to actually interrogate this issue of 
strategic interaction, you know, that Schelling put forward as a, as a critical element in our decision-making about international relations. Because you could actually look at the interaction. One person makes a decision, another person makes a response or another decision, and there's a sort of interactive element. Um, and that's, that's something you can't do even with other experimental methods like survey um, experiments or just, um, you know, uh, other kinds of um, data generation generating processes like Andrew just so eloquently described. Um, and so I think that um, there is um, uh, a real opportunity there within war games to be able to delve into this issue of strategic interaction in a way that you can't with other forms of experimental methodology. That said, I will say I think that there's been um, an overreach of experiments in political science, particularly the area of field experiments. And I've written recently about the ethical concerns that I have about the large populations who are being impacted without informed consent, without any debriefing, without any um, concern about the negative impact that can um, uh, remit to those populations. And so I'm um, concerned about reeling in some of the more extreme versions of field experiments that affect uh, large populations. That's not so true in war games because it's a much mm. more controlled liberatory experiment. But since you asked for the broader context, I'll say that, you know, I feel like the um, the cat's gotten a little bit too far out of the bag and, and I'd like to see more uh, serious consideration of ethical restraints on current field experiments in particular. Yeah, thank, thanks so much. So I guess the, the key takeaway there essentially is that that experiments offer a bit of traction uh, in, in trying to manipulate a certain variable of interest and, and really exploring that that causal effect, uh, whether it's on, on voting outcomes or, or in the case of war games, uh, perhaps on, on conflict outcomes or conflict behavior. Uh, so, so Andrew, I was wondering if you can speak a little bit more about your signal game, right? This is a, a war game that, that follows those tenets of war game kind of definition that we talked about, but then integrates elements of experimental design uh, that Rose just laid out for us. So if you can kind of walk us through it at the big conceptual level, really, what does an experimental war game look like? Uh, and then I think that provides us with the, the language that we need to dive into our conversation about war game design. Perfect. Yeah, I'm going to back my way into it. Um, so not only is there an experimental turn in IR, as you mentioned, but there's also potentially behavioral turn in strategic studies as well. Right. And so Wargame is very much at that kind of connection of the Venn diagram. Um, so I'll try to kind of put in to context experimental Wargaming versus kind of traditional traditional Wargames, if you will, uh, scare quotes. Um, and they're kind of talk, thinking about the political military Wargames that, that Reed was chatting about. Uh, last week. And so you know, the problems with existing or traditional war games are, are fairly clear, particularly when it comes to using them for analysis rather than exploration. Uh, I'm perfectly happy using traditional seminar-based games to explore a problem space or understand what Luminary X or group of Luminaries Y thinks might happen in the Donbass or in the Baltic Sea, uh, but it's not really appropriate to draw analytical conclusions from, from that play given that they're one shot in nature, there's often a white cell that influences game behavior and they're fairly homogenous player pools. And so, you know, if you're trying to make, you know, predictive claims about what's gonna happen in this scenario, should it play out in the real world? I think you're in real trouble there when, when you kind of have that kind of traditional setup, but for exploring a problem space, absolutely appropriate, do it all the time. 
Um, in terms of taking an experimental approach, um, the you know I think there's some characteristics that that are important, right? So first, you're creating a, a test bed that's replicable, right? That can be used multiple times. You know, we'll have debates forever about how many n is appropriate and how many n is enough. Um, but at the very least, your design needs to be replicable. Players need to be able to plug into it and play through the the, the scenario absent right, the game designer being integral um, in the process. Um, they, I mean, experiments don't have to, I suppose, but uh, in, in our case with Signal, right, we really paid a lot of attention to the control treatment design and kind of how, um, and how we kind of in, implemented that inside, inside the game environment. Ideally, all conditions outside of that control treatment uh, distinction are held entirely constant. Um, and, you know, basically the players are bringing themselves their characteristics and then we're varying that one thing. In our case, we're varying the presence or absence of little yield nuclear capabilities inside the game environment. Uh, finally, we have control over the variables under examination. Um, so for us, right, that control is the military capability that I mentioned. And the game is instrumented or designed for data collection. Um, and this is something that, you know, both, both I and I think Jackie as well have, have you know, face challenges with, right? If you have kind of kind of traditional war games, we're really relying there on rapporteurs to capture as much as they possibly can, but probably not everything. And then recording is a wrinkle that sometimes makes some sets of players uncomfortable. Um, and so, you know, thinking really hard about um, how to do that was something that we spent a lot of time on with Signal. One of the nice things, and then one of the things that we see change as we move from tabletop exercise to board game to online game, is that it's easier and easier to capture all of the data from gameplay because with an online game, you're getting it all for free. Uh, whereas that's less the case in tabletop, well, in board games, and then even less the case in tabletops um, as well. Um, so yeah, I've got lots of stories about repertoire trainings in my past, uh, but those are the th types of things that I think are really important. And when we think about what constitutes an experimental uh, war game, but really it is just bringing experimental design principles, right, and pushing them on top of the wargaming environments that have those characteristics that that you guys mentioned in the piece, right? Strategic, strategic interaction, consequential decision making, uh, etc. Yeah, I think that sets us up really nicely for for the conversation that's going to follow, right? We're going to talk about things like data capture. What are the best practices for doing that? We're going to talk about you know, how many iterations one actually needs and, and kind of what happens across those iterations. Is there a certain end that is enough? But I think at the end of the day, Andrew, as you said, right, a experimental war game, you're just manipulating that one variable of interest and really holding everything constant. And in your case, it was whether or not the teams had access to these low yield nuclear yep. weapons. So I actually want to ask if uh, the member of the, the Hoover IT team, Mike, if you can pull up this eyesore of a chart for just a minute. <laughs> that we'll put up. Um, I don't want people to try to read through everything here. It's available in the article uh, that was posted uh, in the chat. But, but this is how Reed, Jackie, and I, I think conceptualize of the game design process. Uh, so starting with the research question, right? And in our case, it's something typically dealing with an international relations or security studies question. Uh, but one could imagine in the business world, maybe that question is grounded in business processes or, or business outcomes. Then we think about the sample. So who are the actual players in this game, right? Are, are we recruiting convenience samples? Are we recruiting experts to play? Uh, then we think about the rules. So 
you know, what does the structure of the game look like? How many moves are there? How many sides are there? Uh, how are the games adjudicated, right? How do we figure out who wins or loses each round of the game? And then we think very deeply about the scenario. So how abstract or not abstract uh, is a particular scenario? And then as Andrew alluded to, data collection is really, really messy and complicated in many games. And some of the technological solutions that, that Andrew talked about, right? These online games can help to, to mitigate some of those issues. But these are the, the things that I wanna, I think, spend the next few minutes talking about uh, to really help folks uh, who are working on war games, whether for academic projects or, or for other things uh, to, to think through. So I want to start with this big question, right, of, you know, what kinds of questions uh, are best answerable using a war game? So Rosa, you know, over to you, maybe, you know, as both of you are responding, should we think about war games as, as being useful for answering kind of specific, you know, real world questions, or are they better for answering bigger theoretical things, uh, both, uh, and kind of how might that, that affect the design of the game? So Rose. Well, I think that one of the values of war games is that they can be really flexible to examine all sorts of different things. Um, so to go back to Andrew's earlier categorization, you know, even for pedagogical purposes, one of the real values of war games is that people learn about themselves and they learn about their own decision-making proclivities. And um, by running through the consequences of it in a hypothetical environment where the consequences may not be real, although they may feel real, they may learn like, oh, if I'm in that real situation, I don't wanna behave that way. Or gee, this other person did this thing and it worked out really great. Um, and so I think that, that one of the real values is you learn about your own decision-making propensities, proclivities, and so on. Um, you know, from the from the other perspective of, um, you know, analysis or um, um, exploration, I think that they can be very valuable to help generate hypotheses um, that can later be tested either using experimental models or formal models or other kinds of things that can be used that way. Um, and so um, it, from that perspective, it can be quite valuable. Um, and I think that there's um, ways in which uh, war games can be um, extremely useful, again, for scenarios where we want to know something about the future, but it's either unethical or impossible logistically to figure out how to do that. So, um, you know, I, I love the chart you have. I think it's really great and it's, it's really comprehensive. Um, and... Uh, I think it's it's a really um, accurate and appropriate way to think about it. But you start with the question, like, what is your research question? And some of these questions are gonna be big and some of them are gonna be small. And that's gonna direct the future structure of the way that the actual game uh, evolves. But I think sometimes those questions are about illuminating decision-making processes. And sometimes those questions are about larger outcomes in the real world and international relations. And depending on which of those focuses it is, the structure of the game may be quite different. Um, so I'm not sure that addresses exactly your question, but. No, it, it really does. And I actually wanna bring in Jackie for a minute here before going over to Andrew. So, so Jackie, you, you run this really interesting series of, of war games on international crisis games. Um, but as you were thinking about kind of this, this question that you were going to ask, first, tell us what the question was. And then can you walk us through the decision-making process that, that you had in your mind that led you to, to adopt a experimental game versus a, a more traditional war game? 
Yeah, so we, our International Crisis War Games series uh, was developed to look at a very rare phenomenon, which is would cyber operations lead to nuclear use? And we wanted specifically to look at how cyber vulnerabilities in nuclear command, control, and communications um, could lead to decisions to, for example, preemptively use nuclear weapons. And then secondarily, we were interested if we give somebody an exploit, are they actually going to use it? Um, but this is actually not something we can test with real world data, right? Both it's classified and, I mean, luckily, these nuclear scenarios don't happen very often. So War Games gave us the opportunity to look at this question. And the other thing I think that led us to war games was that, uh, you know, I'm very inspired by Rose's work and I inherently think that it's human behaviors about technology that we as social scientists can have uh, leverage over. And that's what games really help us understand. I'm not going to tell you what the outcome of a campaign is necessarily, but maybe by running games over time, we can get insights about patterns of human behaviors. And so that's what I wanted to understand. Um, so we ran this game. The real question for us is we designed this experimental game. We ended up having um, four groups. We had a control group, and then we had three other groups um, that had variations of this treatment of vulnerabilities and exploits. Um, and our big question as we entered the game was, how many people do we need to run the game? We were watching Andrew and his team run Signal, which had this huge amount of data. And then most of the other work that was being done was actually either kind of one game iteration or very small iterations. So we ended up running with about 580 players. We ran in groups of five, so it was about 115 different teams. It was over three years, and that that sample started out extremely um, expert and elite. And then as the sample became larger, we became more interested in heterogeneity within the sample. And so we actually expanded out, um, which gave us great leverage to understand whether college students are going to act differently than defense ministers. Uh, spoiler, they actually on the don't act that differently on core things. <laughs> <laughs> just at the margin. So we had to make a series of different decisions about how much realism versus abstraction, how we were going to generate data. And I think there are two, a few things we really learned. One is um, we were really interested in large numbers, but the reality was um, we got very little variance after kind of a certain number. So it all just, I think we could actually run the game with much less people um, and more focus on specific attributes of the sample. Um, and then the other big thing that we noticed was that we were very interested in um, generating data that was rather quantitative. So like my, my dependent variable. And we use surveys to help understand, and we used um, crisis response plans. But then when we came to write the paper, the most interesting tidbits were in where people just filled in information. And so I think as researchers design these games, they need to think not only about how do I like generate sample and how do I create power and how do I make sure that I have like control and treatment, but also allowing for that thing that is unique about games, which is how people interact, the kind of irrationalities about how we as humans in 
deal with these complicated phenomena. That's what games do that you really don't get in survey experiments. So as a researcher, I think you have to find ways to account for and allow for both these like really interesting qualitative tidbits um, and the quantitative that allow you to better kind of characterize larger patterns. So Can I jump in on that, uh, Eric? So I love that answer, Jackie. And it just reminds me like, the very first series of war games I ran, I actually did at Cornell, um, you know, like with paper and pencil, you know, kids and did a lot of debriefing afterwards. And one of the most amazing things that was really insightful is how much information you get out of that kind of debriefing. And sometimes it's stuff they write down, but you can also talk to them afterwards. Right. And so I remember one case they could tie. And they got something really valuable for them, which was extra credit, which could actually bump their grade from like an A minus to an A, which is a really big deal, you know, in an undergraduate population. And there were a bunch of ties, but all the ties, I was looking at sex differences. So all the ties were girls who would tie and the boys wouldn't tie, right? And so I was talking to three sets of two men in each of the groups where um, they would have tied. And then at the last minute, one of them just blew the other one to smithereens. Right. And so I was like, what were you thinking? Did you just decide you didn't care about the extra credit? Did you already have an A? And so it didn't matter. And every one of them said some version of me to me of the following statement, which was, I knew I could have had a tie. I really needed the extra credit. I really wanted that outcome. But I knew if I destroyed him, it would just feel so good. And that was the thing that where I was like, what is that feeling? Like, what is generating that feeling? And that's actually what started the whole inquiry into the hormone stuff, right? Was like, what is that feeling? What generates that feeling that makes you do something that you know rationally isn't in your best interest, but that you're privileging this, you know, um, experience over um, some valuable outcome. And so, you know, that, that, that's the other value of war games is because when we were looking at hormones, you could look at stuff in real time over time. So like you did it over three years, you can actually look at how people change over time. And that becomes a variable of interest in and of itself. And so um, I think that what you did there is really great, um, but also provides a lot of insight for other people who are interested in looking at change over time or change in real time, because that's what that's what war games allow you to do. Um, sorry, Eric, I didn't mean to cut in. No, that, that was actually a, a really helpful, uh, you know, I think statement to, to kind of bring us to the next portion of the conversation. And that, that brings us to this notion of the sample, right? So, so Rose says that these college students are, you know, maybe behaving in a way that is a little bit different, perhaps, uh, than real world decision makers, uh, but maybe they're not, right? So I think one of the things that all researchers think about when they're running a, a project, whether it's a survey experiment, a lab experiment, is this notion of sample, right? And what should that sample look like? Uh, so, so Andrew, I was wondering if you can share some thoughts with us about uh, your work. Uh, you've obviously run uh, the Signal Game and, and many of the associated projects on very different types of samples. Um, so what are some of the debates right now in political science surrounding uh, the value of different types of samples? And then if you can talk to us a little bit about the challenges uh, of getting you know, certain types of samples versus others, um, and then we'll, we'll build from there. Yeah. So, for, so first off, it's this is uh, the bone of contention um, in in the field. Um, we use sampling techniques that kind of run the gamut from you know trying to find the most senior policymakers to play the tabletop version of Signal that we could, 
all the way down to Amazon Mechanical Turk, right? Uh, with undergraduate psychology labs and then play events with early career. So kind of young professionals between the kind of the 25 to 40, um, you know, from the academic side, that would be postdocs uh, inside of government. That might be something like GS 11 to 12, right? Um, but a little bit more expert, if you will. Um, and, and so you know, we, we try to kind of capture across the, across the spectrum in terms of play. Of course, if you could get the actual decision maker in the room to play a particular war game or a particular scenario, that would be fantastic. Um, with that said though, we shouldn't assume that a current policymaker or the for former policymakers that we often use as proxies for real policymakers um, are actually gonna behave the same way inside your synthetic environment that they would in the real world. Uh, that, I think that's a conceit of you know, wargaming methods writ large. Um, you know, as, as researchers, you know, we often do our best and, and Eric, you know, I, I look at your work, right? To, to replicate lead samples, right? By trying to draw on PME, for example, right? And get, get you know, folks to actually engage with your research that come from those types of uh, backgrounds. Uh, but, you know, obviously how well it's gonna go really depends on your research question, how sensitive it is, et cetera. Um, you know, for what it's worth, you know, we, we had a bit of a back and forth in science with your colleagues that ran around this point. Um, and, you know, I think their position was you needed to have elites and our position is, well, you, that's probably true, but we don't have any data to test that proposition. Um, you know, I'm fairly sympathetic to the idea that there could be a distinction between elite versus non-elite play, uh, but we don't have data to actually make that kind of argument in settled fact. And so that's one laboratory effect among many. Um, you know, I think broadly, you know, when you look at the, the board games and the TTXs for, for Signal and also some of the other game designs, you know, I think that I see a lot of what Jackie sees in terms of, you know, ultimately players are playing the game that's put in front of them. They're facing this strategic dilemma. It's like, sure, the, the language that people are using might be different. Um, I would say also students care a little bit less about how their colleagues think of them. Uh, you know, senior policymakers that care a lot about what the most senior person in the room thinks. Um, and so that's something that's worth kind of uh, teasing out as well. Uh, but ultimately, you know, I think this is some of the work that needs to happen inside the academy in this space, which is to actually, um, you know, try to adjudicate and unpack this in a war game setting. Obviously, uh, Josh Kurtzer, right, has his own argument uh, using pulling on survey work, right? And he also, right, argues that elite versus non-elite isn't isn't as significant a distinction. Um, of course, we could also have an entire panel talking about the definition of eliteness um, as well. Well, thanks so much. I actually want to bring Reed Pauly into this conversation. In in some of your archival work, uh, you've seen differences in, in behavior between you know those folks that are actually in government and, and those that are mm -hmm. you know brought in just to play for the day that maybe don't have uh, government experience. I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that, Reed. Yeah, thanks, Eric. So uh, I've had the opportunity, um, uh, you know, an exciting research experience of finding in the archives um, uh, records of these early political military war games, some of which Rose was talking about um, in her remarks, but even before the Vietnam games were played, it was uh, Thomas Schelling and Lincoln Bloomfield running games both outside and an unclassified setting at MIT. And then also being asked to come into the Pentagon to run classified games as game directors as the Pentagon was setting up its um, 
joint war games control group uh, that became the joint war games agency. And this is in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, and they ran games throughout the 60s. But um, in a sense, uh, these are as elite uh, a war game as you can run. Uh, this almost feels like when you're reading the documents that it's a time before the tyranny of the inbox, right? When you could actually get very senior policymakers sitting in a room together for an entire day uh, debating, uh, you know, what to do uh, if the Soviets attempt to invade West Berlin, right? And uh, uh, they're doing it in a, in a structured, you know, strategic uh, gaming sense, but uh, they're also doing it in a way that conforms with, with Schelling's design of the game to try and get them to signal their uh, interests and resolve and capabilities to the other side that's sitting in the, the room across the hall, and then trying to get a sense of um, who has uh, effectively signaled, who is uh, going to get their way in the crisis, whose signals are being misperceived and whatnot. Uh, the finding that that um, Eric is referring to, right, is that we can take all these, these games with elites in them uh, and uh, count the number of times uh, in games when they were allowed to use nuclear weapons, uh, when they decided not to use nuclear weapons, and out of a, a sample of 26 uh, games or so, um, in only two of them did the uh, elite policymakers choose to use nuclear weapons, and even in that, that case, maybe I'll post the article in the chat if people are interested, but even in that case, it's a little fuzzy about, you know, whether they really meant to use nuclear weapons or if control team did it for them. Um, but the point is to compare it then to when these same uh, design games, the same method was used, um, but with different players. And um, there was an instance in where this happening, as far as I know, it's only happened the one time, but uh, the Pentagon invited uh, were, were called uh, like business leaders, executives, and some celebrities in for essentially like a public relations tour. And they played this game with them. And uh, suffice it to, to say, they were um, much more likely to use nuclear weapons uh, than the elites uh, uh, policymakers were when they played the games. Uh, and, and you can see this uh, also in, in slightly different methods that are used uh, but by other scholars who tried to run games in in a uh, undergraduate setting where they seem to go uh, result in thermonuclear war slightly more. So, so you might at least think that um, you know if it comes to certain research questions about uh, uh, specialty expertise like nuclear strategy, maybe the sample size or sample. Um, uh, elite or convenience matters more to specific niche questions like nuclear strategy. Um, uh, and, and I want to make just one more point about this, right? The, some of these players were um, cabinet level, right? Some of these players were, um, you know, like the assistant secretary of defense for international security affairs, John McNaughton. And, and the way I just think about this, right, is that if you want to run a war game, and get an average treatment effect to try and understand, you know, what a policymaker might do in a hypothetical circumstance, right? If you're talking about what a policymaker might do in the 1960s or recommend, you don't really want the average treatment effect if you can get the treatment effect on John McNaughton, 
right? Like the actual policymaker there making the choices and telling you in a war game what they might recommend or not. Schelling, Schelling um, designed it this way and, and was able with his convening power to get folks like this to participate, but he very explicitly did not ask and never wanted a president to play his games. He did not believe that the president of the United States should be put in a position to answer questions about a hypothetical crisis, lest uh, he be uh, signaling his intent in the real world. Excellent yeah. question. Thanks. So I think we're going to, sir, go ahead, Andrew. Sorry, just a, just a two finger. Uh, so the in the last week's discussion, right, the end, the end got kind of short shrift, particularly in the lightning round. And just to note that with regards to kind of Reed's, Reed's issue here, the large N actually solves some of that problem, right? When your question is like, how does a treatment impact nuclear use? If you get lots of N, it's not necessarily about an individual using nuclear weapons or not. It's given the experimental condition, our nuclear use are, are nuclear weapons used more or less like, is nuclear weapons use more or less likely? And if you assume that there's a universal distribution, right, of errorness in your sample, if it's large enough, law of large numbers, right, you're able to actually say like, hey, we think that this capability, right, moves the needle. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that you're getting with N uh, here. Yeah, so I think there's lots of really, really interesting debates here, right? The eliteness of the sample and what actually is elite. Do I need senior leaders? Can I use a proxy so more junior folks? Uh, and, and then also the, the number of respondents. But there's one question that actually comes from a member of the audience that I think is, is really important. And it gets back to Reed's point about, you know, who these individuals are representing. So in many war games that are two-sided, we have, you know, blue, the United States, uh, going up against a, a rival red power. Uh, so maybe red is Russia, maybe red is China, North Korea, whomever. And so, so how do we think about uh, recruiting players to play red, uh, right? They, you know, we can't have, obviously ask Putin to play himself in a, in a war game. Uh, I don't have the resources to do that. I think he's got other things uh, that are on his mind right now. Um, but, but how should we think about, um, you know, that, that type of impact on a game? So actually, I'll go over to Jackie for that. I know this is something that you thought about. The, the red play is really extremely difficult. So I think you make, as a researcher, you're making a choice. Am I collecting information about a particular scenario, right? Do I, do I care about what's gonna happen in Russia, Ukraine? Um, or is this kind of more generally how I think humans are gonna behave? And I, I think, I actually think as political scientists, it's a little bit easier to run the abstract phenomenon than the uh, the real the real world phenomenon. And I want to say, as somebody who's worked in kind of DoD war gaming, I think sometimes we put too much credit actually in getting the right players in reds. Maybe I'm like being a little bit divisive here, because I think very rarely do we actually understand the insights that red has. And so personally, I would prefer. And this is something I think that many people in the Naval War College might disagree with me on. I would prefer iteration to understand kind of what are the possibilities than to try and get the perfect red team and then say, well, based on that perfect sample, I think red is going to do X, Y, and Z. Um, anecdotally, I ran a game where I was very insistent on having a red team and then uh, because I wanted to be realistic and those jerks didn't play the way I wanted them to play at all. And I lost complete control over the game. So personally, I, I actually think we put almost too much emphasis on the red, but I think 
if I am concerned about, like for my cyber game, 580 players from all over the world, but not really because I had trouble finding players from China and Russia. So when I talk to a practitioner and I say, here are the implications of my findings, I'm very clear to say, we had international players, but 70% of them are American. And the 30% that were not were either from South America, Europe, or you know, they're generally not from Russia or China. If I want to say something specifically about what Russia and China are thinking, then it's very important that I'm using the sample from Russia and China. And in that way, you're dealing with the same kind of problems that people with survey experiments deal with in terms of sample generation and trying to extrapolate um, specific country foreign policy decisions versus general human reactions to international crises. That was that was fantastic and I think offers us uh, you know an ability to shift the conversation to these questions about iteration and abstraction, right? Um, and, and Jackie has mentioned you know her game pretty significantly. So I don't know if we can drop the the link to your simulations and gaming article into the chat. I think that'd be helpful for some of the viewers. So I want to step back and, and think you know, about experimental design, war game design. One of the, the key trade-offs that, that researchers make is about this idea of abstraction. So how similar do we want a scenario or an experiment to be to the real world? So do we want it to perfectly simulate a real world event and be externally valid? Or do we want to maybe have a little bit more abstraction uh, in that way? Maybe things aren't as detailed. Maybe we don't list specific country names, but that perhaps gives researchers a little bit more experimental control, the ability to control the vignette uh, in a way that has internal validity. So Rose, um, I was wondering if you can walk us through the distinction uh, between external validity and internal validity. Uh, I, I know I often need a refresher. Um, and, and so we'll start with that and then we'll, we'll open up the conversation a little bit more broadly. Yeah, thanks, Eric. I'm happy to do that, although I think that your question's actually also getting at this issue about how realistic you want your games to be, so I might touch on that as well. Um, so, you know, external validity is the thing that political scientists obsess about and basically comes down to, you know, how generalizable is it to the larger population? And so most political scientists think that the way around that problem is to just have larger and larger and larger sample sizes, right? A hundred thousand people in your sample or whatever, and that gives it external validation. Um, that can definitely increase your generalizability, but that's only true if the experiment also already has internal validity, which means are you actually studying, testing the thing that you say that you're studying or testing? So I'll give a really simple example. Um, the early get out the vote uh, experiments um, had um, conditions where they would go to people's houses and talk to them about whether or not they're gonna vote. And <clears throat> this was done in New Haven. Um, and what would happen is they'd go and they'd talk to people. And if people weren't there, they would go back the next day. And if they weren't there, they would just code them as I didn't talk to that person. But there's a huge difference, especially in a city like New Haven, between the kinds of people who are home at three o'clock in the afternoon and the kinds of people who aren't home at three o'clock in the afternoon, right? I mean, it has a lot to do with employment status. So, but then it gets coded as exactly the same. And so you're not actually studying the thing that you say that you're studying, right? Which is um, whether or not you had contact with someone. Um, and so if you are not actually having the relationship between the independent and the dependent variable that you say that you're studying, it doesn't matter how many people you're studying, you still, it's like garbage in, garbage out. There's nothing that you learn from that. 
So internal validity, which is the thing that psychologists obsess about, is all about the actual internal design of the experiment. Are you actually manipulating a variable in a systematic way that allows you to test the question under investigation in a systematic way that um, shows the connection between the independent variable and the dependent variable. From there, you can increase your samples. The way the psychologists do it is actually not to increase the sample size on a single experiment, which is what political scientists do. What they do is many, many, many replications of an experiment where they'll change, say, the population. They'll change the context. They'll change different aspects of it to look at the scope conditions. And it's the replication of those experiments across variant scope conditions that to them equilibrates to generalization. That's very, very different than the way that political scientists understand generalization, which is just, I have 100,000 people, it's an awesome experiment, right? Um, now, the other issue here, which I think Eric raises is the issue related to, um, do you have naive realism or experimental realism in the actual experiment that you're running? So you can have all the bells and whistles so that it looks like what it would look like to make that real experiment. But if you're not engaging psychologically the subjects in the actual decision you care about, it doesn't matter. Um, so my favorite example here is the phenomenal Shantoy Yengar experiment on um, ads that he ran when he was at UCLA where um, he wanted to look at the effect of negative advertising on people's decision-making about voting for particular candidates. And he set up these living rooms in, mall, in shopping malls in LA, including TVs. And uh, they were supposed to watch the ad and then you know, give the feedback. And what happened was he did what everybody has in their living room and he had you know, remote control, right? So people sat down, the negative ad came on, they changed the channel. So he had no, he actually lost his whole stimulus. So he had to take away the remote. He had to take away an aspect of naive realism in order to get at what he really wanted to get at, which was to engage the subjects in the actual process he cared about, which was their reaction to the ad. But he needed their attention on their ad, in the ad in order to be able to do that. And I think that's one of the real failings in a lot of the experiments that are often done is that they fail to actually psychologically engage the subjects in the dynamic mechanism that we're interested in exploring. If you can do that, it doesn't matter what any of the bells and whistles look like. And I'll give you an example of that. When I first ran the experiments that I did in Cornell, I, um, had these, you know, like I said, simulated war games. They were in classrooms, paper and pencil. There was no computer. There were no visual images. There were no maps. I mean, it was like no part of it looked like a real experience. And then two or three weeks later, I went to give a talk at a dorm, a frat, actually late at night. Um, and I come in and there's this enormous room and the whole room, it was like 40 by 40, was covered with butcher blocks all over everywhere with, you know, um, lines and squirrels, you know, squiggles and, and numbers and whatever pictures. And I said to the guy, I was like, what is this? And he's like, what do you mean? What is this? This is your experiment. And I said, what? They had been playing the experiment for three weeks after they left my classroom because they found the fight so engaging, right? 
no bells and whistles, but it psychologically engaged them in a form of competition they found interesting, right? And so that's what I mean. Like if you can psychologically engage the process, it doesn't matter what the externals look like, but simultaneously you can have the most fancy, expensive, realistic um, surroundings. And if they're checking their phone and they're thinking about their, you know, um, mother who's sick and their kid who doesn't like them and, you know, their brother who just died of an opioid overdose, you, you ain't got nothing. Right. Um, and so you have to understand what that baseline is going in, in order to engage the process that matters to you. Um, and obviously, you know, I feel pretty passionately about this because I've, I've made a lot of these mistakes and I've seen, you know, a lot of these mistakes and it's very hard to design a protocol that engages people, but that's the value of pilot testing, even with games, is to actually try it out and see if people care. You know, can you distract them? And if you can distract them, you can do better. If you can't distract them, then you've got a pretty good baseline. Those are, those I think are really, really important lessons. And I think all war game designers are thinking about how to draw people in, right? So some folks right now are using very, in your language, Rose, kind of bells and whistles with virtual reality sensors. Others are, are trying to draw them in with uh, scenarios that are perhaps incredibly intriguing. So Andrew, I want to ask you to describe how you think about this challenge in the war games that you've designed. Um, and then to talk a little bit about in this process about abstraction, right? I think that's part of this decision-making process. You're trying to figure out how do I, I make this realistic in a way to draw people in. Fantastic. Yeah. So I'll give you the in theory and then the in practice answers. So, you know, we have a piece in uh, an editor volume that Frank Smith and Nina Kohler's French sector are putting together where we kind of describe a simplex, right? A triangular simplex with kind of analytical utility at one axis, contextual realism on the other axis, and then engaging play on the other. And again, when you're comparing it against the other synthetic generating processes, I think the fantastic thing about Wargaming is that actually we can calibrate as designers where you want to fall inside that triangle, right? So we have some games that you know, maximize engaging play, but make analysis very difficult to do, right? Of course, ideally you want to live, live slap bang in the middle of that simplex, right? And be able to pull all of the analytical, you know, goodness out of it, right? Whilst also mirroring the real world dynamics that you think are important, whilst also creating an environment that players are sutured into, right? Uh, as, as Rose just, just discussed. Um, and so, you know, we spent, that's what we spent a lot of time thinking about when we're doing initial design and then, uh, you know, have an alpha version, perform beta testing, et cetera, uh, which is, you know, central to, to actually, you know, getting a game that's, that's playable on, on, on the back end. Um, in practice, you know, I think like Jackie, I tend towards abstract scenarios rather than using real world countries, uh, particularly when we're relying on American subject matter experts to play the role of a Russia or a China or North Korea. Um, you know, again, there's not settled scholarship on this point, but I'd be very worried um, that it's an American's view of what, um, you know, Russia would do in a particular scenario. Um, so that mirror imaging concern is significant. And just to give you an anecdote, when, you know, we were actually going through this beta testing phase with Signal, you know, initially, like any other good war game, we had blue and we had red. Uh, and, and as soon as we had red, we saw a whole bunch of escalate to de-escalate. Um, because players were just assuming that they were Russian. That's what they should do because they want the Gerasimov doctrine sets. 
um, or at least what American policymakers think that it says. Um, and so that's a big problem, right? If your questions has nothing to do with that particular context and is more about in general, when I add a nuclear capability, what's going to happen? Um, and so, you know, that's something that, you know, we, is really problematic. It also drives map design. Um, so not only player country, player colors, right? But, you know, our initial designs had a, had a country kind of off to the left that was an island and then two other countries down on the bottom right that were contiguous to one another and players said Russia, Europe, America. And that's again, not what we want them to do, right? And that's what drives the player color choices and the map choices inside of Signal, right? To try to get us as far away from that context as, as possible because we're not interested in that particular dynamic. We're interested in generalized theorizing around uh, when nuclear use is more or less likely given capability set. Um, which is, again, not to say that if you were exploring the Baltic Sea or the Black Sea, that having, you know, a map with hexes overlaid and, you know, little, um, you know, pieces stolen from Monopoly and Risk, right, isn't appropriate. It absolutely is. But it's for exploration in a specific instance, not for generalized, like, IR insights. And so, you know, I, I agree with Jackie. It's much easier for us as political scientists because we're interested in the general rule rather than the specific. Yeah, I think that that's that's fascinating. I think one of the the key themes that's really emerging from this conversation is that every single design choice involves some kind of inherent trade-off, right? Mm -hmm. You're either going to have an elite sample that is is going to be able to replicate perhaps very closely the decision making, uh, you know, cognitive ability of, of the folks that are actually making decisions, but they're going to be really hard to get. You might have a a convenient sample that's easier to get, but perhaps you you have some loss in realism. And the same goes uh, with the degree of abstractness, right? The you know, the lessons that you're able to, to generalize are going to be different from a, a game that is, is very precise. So, you know, one of the things that I think many social scientists will, will push for is this notion of an increased number of iterations or, or repeat, repetitions of a game, right, to help build up essentially the number of games so you can perhaps see trends over the, over, uh, the course of several games. Uh, this is obviously, as Andrew, you mentioned, something that is, is up for debate. Some people say, well, you know, should we do many iterations uh, of games with uh, perhaps a convenient sample or, or do we do uh, smaller numbers of games played by elites? So, you know, Rose, from an experimental standpoint, you talked a little bit about the difference between psychologists and political scientists when it comes to this. Um, but wondering if you might be able to share some of your thoughts on kind of maybe what's better at the end of the day. I'm not sure it's better. I think it depends on what your research question is. So to go back to the earlier discussion we had about whether it's better to have elites or regular people and, you know, Jackie's work and some of Josh Kurtzer's work shows that they're not that different. Um, but I think a lot of it has to do with what you're asking. So I imagine in some areas they're quite different and in other areas they're the same. So if you think about like psychology, I don't need elites if I'm doing a subject on vision. Anybody who has a healthy eye is a reasonable subject for me, right? But if I'm looking at elite decision-making, then it may be more helpful to have an elite um, person. And I think uh, Reed's example here speaks well to this example of, um, you know, in the historical war games, celebrities and others may be more likely to engage in nuclear war just because they think of it in more like, um, a gaming terms really as something that's fun and that's interesting and they want to make it lively and they want to make it engaging and they don't really think through the consequences in the same way that a real decision maker 
who maybe has confronted questions like that or had to think about questions like that would. And so, um, you know, with regard to the way that experiments are run in political science versus psychology and economics has its own way of doing stuff too, right? Like they come up with a formal model and then they do an experiment and then they adjust the formal model and then they run it, you know, um, through a simulation. So there's different ways of doing these things. And I think that like with anything else, it really should be driven by your theoretical question. And one of the concerns that I have, and this is probably just because I'm old, but I see the entire field of political science moving much more in this direction of like how fancy your methods are with no concern about what the theoretical question is. And I think that they should be driven by what is your substantive question and then pick the method that works best for it rather than I have this, you know, King Kong method and I'm going to show how I'm this stats, you know, God, and it doesn't really matter that what I show is that, you know, I don't recognize the person who moved in next door. And so who cares, right? Um, and so I think that there should be a privileging of a particular kind of theoretical um, insight, uh, uh, um, careful design of the protocol around the research question, and then picking the particular method, whether it's interviews or war games or formal models or quantitative analysis that fits the question rather than do what I see increasingly, which is pick the method and then find a CAN data set and then figure out what your results are and then backdoor the question. And I, I read like, you know, I review eight pieces a month that are like that and they just drive you insane, right? Um, because it's clear what the motive and the incentive is, which is I need publications for tenure, but um, the insight into anything that matters for something in the real world is zero. Um, and so, you know, we have this real disconnect um, between the incentives of the institutional system and the ostensible goals, which is to provide some kind of meaningful insight into the real world. Um, and I know that sounds really cynical, but, you know, like I said, I'm old. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. And I think opens the door for a whole other set of conversations about uh, career incentives in, in academia and maybe uh, research more broadly. Um, but Andrew, I'm just wondering how you weigh these trade-offs uh, in the design of your games, uh, because you've had multiple iterations, different platforms. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I think for for me, it's really important to have that variety of game type that's asking the same kind of theoretical question that gives you the different audiences or or players for your game, right? So. You know, from my perspective, if you build a really fancy experimental war game that's hosted online, you still get the tabletop exercise for free. You should use that. You should take that to the beltway, um, you know, and, and, and play, play it through with sets of players who might not be comfortable kind of playing with your, you know, um, fancy online setting. Um, so that's kind of one way to do it. I think that, you know, obviously for us, we were kind of stabbing in the dark in terms of coming up with our end uh for for our for our work because we didn't really have anything to compare it to right like i think the best data set was reads right where you had different games inside the data set so it wasn't even the same game played you know multiple times you know when we were when we were doing this work um ultimately we ended up with 1500 players um just over 500 games i think that broadly i agree with jackie that there were diminishing returns to what the n plus one buys you analytically and I think that looking back, I would have much rather tweaked some of the 
default secondary RQs that we could have asked and answered with the project rather than garnering that much N. Um, so for example, right, our nuclear dyads are symmetrical. Well, that's really interesting for peer and near peer cases, but if you're interested in asymmetrical competition in the nuclear space, right, we could have tested that by taking away some of the N from our symmetrical dyad. And I think we would have got more oomph from doing that. Um, but what I will say is that, and, and Stacey Pettyjohn's exercises have done this from RAND and now CNAS, right? Having the social science principles behind even exploratory games allow you to port it over later should you actually wish to garner more N. And so I think that's the useful you know, thing as well, right? So even if I'm building an exploratory game, and I actually did this with Heather Williams at King's College, right? It had an experimental setup, even though our N was like 10, right? But it still got, it still allowed us to say something along the lines of, hey, when the players had this treatment, the conversations look different in these ways amongst luminary X, Y, or Z. And I think that's really valuable, right? Like it doesn't rise to the level of statistical significance, certainly wouldn't impress anybody in the journals that Rose is talking about, but right, is something really, you know, you can still do it in an exploratory setting. Uh, and, and I think that's a really useful thing to think about as well. Yeah, thanks so much. So, so both Andrew and Rose, your last round of responses, I think bring up this broader set of questions about how we as researchers should characterize the findings of war games, uh, and then how we should think about publishing them and, and getting this information out to a broader audience. So one of the audience members uh, raises a really good question, you know, essentially saying that, you know, are, are war games limited in the sense do, do players just say, oh, it's a game, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to act in the way that I'm going to act because it's a game. Um, so how do we think about perhaps potential limitations like that as we frame and design our research? And then, you know, how do we appeal to reviewers, right? Rose, you, you brought up this great example early on how some reviewers at the American Journal of Political Science uh, told you several years ago that uh, you can't learn anything about politics from an experiment. And I think many folks that are using Wargaming today get that same kind of reaction from reviewers who, who say that this isn't really a, a known methodology. So I know it's a broad kind of meandering question, maybe there wasn't a question there, but would love both of your thoughts on, on both how we characterize the limitations of our results and how we should convince reviewers uh, that this work is, is worth publishing. So over to Rose first, I know you, you've both submitted this and also served uh, on several editorial boards. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is what the purpose is. So Andrew just raised a really good point. You know, if you're not trying to publish this work, if you're just doing it as like in-house stuff for your um, you know, a government uh, job and you don't need to publish it, then the incentive structures are slightly different. If you do need to publish it, then um, I think that the, the important thing is to figure out ways to tie the game to ongoing theoretical debates in the field so that you broaden the potential audience of people that would be interested in it who may not share the methodology but are very, very interested in the substantive topic. Um, and the other is, you know, it's just a matter of kind of, you know, banging your head against the wall for a lot of years. So nobody does experiments and then pretty soon there's too many experiments. Not pretty soon, it's 20 years, but you know, you get my point. So some of it is just keeping at it, but um, I think a lot of it is actually tying it to substantive questions of interest to broader audiences and then saying here's this novel way to investigate it um, rather than than forwarding the method 
um, because then that could put people off who either don't understand the method or who don't like the method. Um, and I also, you know, think that the other thing that's just important to say is which journals you target really matter. There's going to be some journals that are much more receptive to this than other journals. You know, there's going to be some journals that just um, are not going to be interested in novel methods like this. And so thinking seriously about which journals you send it to, particularly if you have a time constraint, like I, I don't have three years to wait or whatever. Um, so you don't want to go through multiple journals that are going to reject it before. And then I'll say one final thing for people who maybe are very interested in this, but um, you know, either have tenure or have come up for tenure, which is that there's lots of places you can publish this stuff that's not in political science. And the upside of that is that you actually engage an audience of, of people who are interested in the method or perhaps interested in the topic. And you can come up with very interesting collaborations and have very interesting conversations with people you wouldn't have encountered otherwise because you're actually reaching them from their own journals rather than expecting them to be reading yours. Now, for some people, that's not going to work for tenure, but for others, it may not be as important or they have enough publications in other areas or their departments are more liberal about what counts. And then publishing in a journal like Games and Simulations can really help because then it's going to broaden the audience and open up other possibilities that you might not have um, thought about when people reach out and say, hey, I saw this piece and I'm doing this thing and maybe we can talk and and so, you know, to the extent that that's a possibility, um, it's really a wonderful opportunity if you um, have the freedom and flexibility within your own institutional incentives and constraints to reach out and do it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, Rosa's spot on, right? Policy relevance hooked into theoretical debates. I think also another thing that um, certainly that our, my team has done is, you know, mixed methods research, right? Pull in the survey experiments that are, more normal in the field, right? And use that to, you know, introduce the, the method. And I think that was one of the nice things about the, the JPR piece. Um, in terms of the, the kind of the back portion of the, um, the audience question, I think there's a really important point for, for those of us that use war games in our research to make. And, and there's this obvious criticism that war games are kind of made up and thus not reliable. But I think that that criticism kind of misses the point um, not least because it's just as true of survey experiments or formal models and computer-based simulations, um, you know, and, and where empirical data is unavailable, right? Um, so that's the bar. The bar isn't like, where's this data coming from, right? It's, is it providing unique insights vis-a-vis -vis these other alternatives? And my answer when you've got a behavioral question is yes, because I can't assume things like perfect rationality and I can't assume things like information, a perfect information um, that we often do in, inside of those contexts. I mean, obviously, if we all had the empirical data, then we would use it, we'd answer the question and we'd be done, right? But, I'll, but to be quite frank, the, a lot of the policy relevant questions that we, you know, we, we ask in things like War on the Rocks, right, or the quarterly, there, there are no empirics for like, should I build a delivery system X, Y, or Z? Should I, you know, you, you know have strategy A, B, or C? You know, it, there, we don't have the empirics for it. So it's, you know, you're creating best substitutes for. Um, and in that, in that sense, for me, it's, it's a pretty attractive tool, again, within that broader toolkit for us to pick up and use. 
Thanks so much. So we, we've gotten the whole kind of gamut from starting to think about a war game, how should we design a war game, and then how should we think about publishing a war game. So what I want to do in the last 10 minutes or so is to transition to a, a lightning round, uh, where I'm actually going to ask Jackie and Reed to, to join in a little bit. Uh, so I'll ask a question um, to all of you, and, and you'll basically get a no more than two sentence answer. Um, and I think it's a, it's a nice way of bringing this all together. Uh, but the first question uh, for the lightning round, and I'll start with Jackie first on this, um, is if an organization could grant you unlimited resources to improve wargaming, what would it be? Ooh, either uh, an archive of, of wargaming data or a place where we could give samples and party planning to all the researchers that want it, because that's the really hard thing about getting into war games is all the money and time it takes to throw the party that is a game. Perfect. So a center that would support and allow researchers to come in and run war games. Andrew. Uh, a sandbox for war game designers to quickly iterate and field war games. Rose. Yeah, I really like Jackie's answer. Um, I think that um, for me, it would be setting up training sessions for graduate students and junior scholars like as a short summer institute to not only train people how to do it, but to establish collaborations between those who are starting to work on such um, topics. Oh, that's awesome. And Reed. I love those. I like both Jackie and Rose's. I especially want to double tap the archival uh, uh, one suggestion, which also involves filing a lot of FOIAs and mandatory classification reviews. Uh, can war games be used beyond the defense realm? Jackie. Yes. <laughs> I think we often use war games to generate the data that we're interested in, which is generally international security. But if you look, games are wonderful for understanding anything that doesn't happen normally. Um, so environmental issues. Actually, games are used in a lot of formats actually in American political science, that, but we don't call them war games. We call them something else. Andrew. 100% yes. Anytime you have a behavioral problem where we have an RQ and need to rely on synthetic data, we should go for it. Uh, the business case for me looms large, thinking about the legacy of shell scenario planning uh, and current efforts to understand geopolitical risk inside of uh, major firms. Yeah, so absolutely. And, you know, they don't call them war games in psychology, but they do these exact war games um, to look at mating behavior. So relationship status and mating behavior. And it's very uh, useful if depressing. Read. Yes, 100%. War games will reveal uh, mistakes in your planning, your assumptions, your thinking that you didn't even know were there in any uh, sector. Perfect. And I'll do this as the last one. Uh, so, what's the most important thing we can gain from war games, Jackie? Oh, no. You can't go. The, the most important thing to, to we can get from war games, I think it's. I, for me, I'm inherently a behavioralist. I believe the, the human behaviors are the most interesting phenomenon to understanding how the world works. And so I think that's what games provide is a, a really unique and important way to understand human behaviors. That was a total cop out of an answer, but there you go. Andrew. My nurse on Jackie is a new understanding of behavior that doesn't hide behind the math. Oh, that's awesome. Rose? Um, I think that the most important thing that can be gained, and it's not clear it will be gained, is um, a reduction in the risk of nuclear war. 
That's what we need. We need in the world today, right? I, I feel no, like I'm, Rose just like one up to all of us. This is like, oh, <laughs> of course, yeah. Like, like the the wind should be like not going to nuclear war. I don't know why I didn't think of that. No, but I mean, I think that because when you think about things that you don't want to have happen, and yet you don't have data on it. How do you simulate how to deal with this? And, you know, with regard to pandemic disease, they did a lot of this in the CDC during the Clinton and W administrations. And then it was completely eviscerated when Trump came into office. And you think about how you could have actually prevented a million deaths now in America, maybe not a million, but, you know, if we were at the level of Japan, we would have had 50,000 deaths, not a million. And that could have been prevented precisely through the use of war games that they ran in the CDC, you know, in earlier administrations during their pandemic control group that was eliminated. And so I think that when we think about what we can get out of war games, it's not just, you know, I think about nuclear war, but pandemic disease. I mean, lots of things where you learn how to prevent mistakes that you wouldn't otherwise because you haven't thought about it before. To basically get a test drive uh, without as significant of the consequences of, of facing these things in the real world. And Reed, this means you get the last word on this. So over to you. Well, I want to do a two finger quick on, on Rose's point of a, a piece in foreign policy that explored this a little bit. And one of the issues with that Trump transition, right, was that they actually did play something that maybe Andrew would call exploratory or educational, right, as a kind of seminar discussion of pandemic preparedness. Um, but then it was the, the, if you'd like to think that it was successful um, or useful as an exercise during the transition, it was completely eviscerated by the turnover in the Trump administration upon arrival, right? So like the first national security advisor who uh, would have presumably played in that exercise last like three weeks. Right. So so you don't end up having uh, the transfer of knowledge that 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 exercise was supposed to do. Um, I was going to end it on a, on a similar theme, which is that war games can give us a more peaceful world. Uh, it's somewhat ironic to the name uh, war games. When some people are unfamiliar, they feel like it is a, a hawkish exercise or something. But the point of simulating this. Uh, level of conflict uh, ahead of time is so that it does not happen in the real world. Well, well thanks for, for that positive end note. I think that's what we need a, a lot more of in the world today. Uh, I want to thank uh, Dr. Andrew Reddy and Dr. Rose McDermott again for taking the time to, to join Jackie Reed and I today uh, for what I hope was a, a really fun and insightful conversation. Um, with that, I want to turn the floor over to, to doc, Dr. Jackie Schneider uh, for some comments about our next session. Yeah, thank you so much, Eric, for moderating what, for me, it's been an extraordinarily interesting conversation. So this is the second, but March 16th is our third and final virtual webinar where we're going to be discussing kind of how all these things link back to national security. So this is March 16th. We're taking a few weeks off and we'll be, meet back at March 16th, 11 o'clock Pacific time. And we'll be discussing how war games impact national security and defense decision making and whether these social science methods that we've been 
and kind of geeking out about today can actually inform these kinds of games or whether there is just a divide between how we think about war games and academia and how we use them in national security decision making. So we have the honor of having with us Mr. Bob Work, who was a kind of shadow participant in our first session because he has such an outsized role in the development of war games and the importance of war games with, within contemporary Department of Defense. He was the 32nd Dep Deputy Secretary of Defense. Uh, Dr. Mike Zenka, who's the Director of Research and Learning in the McChrystal Group, who's worked very extensively on red teaming, something we talked a little bit about today. And then Dr. Stacy Pettyjohn, who is currently the uh, Senior Fellow and Director of the Defense Program at the Center for a New American Security, but who previously um, ran the Wargaming Center at RAND. So looking forward to having all of you join us. And once again, if you can't join us, you missed it, but you want to follow up, um, we do post on YouTube shortly after the webinar is over. Um, so is there for anybody who's interested. Thank you all for joining us. Mm -hmm.